0: MP, it's
1: here, this weekend. That's right, Bretto, the wellness base camp lands two hours south of Sydney in Kyama this Saturday, June the 2nd. Our
0: naturopath, gut health, and female health extraordinaire Helen Patterin will be joining us. Fuad
1: Kassab from Quirky Cookings coming down. Fellow podcaster, Dr. Maria Zussman will be talking all about stress. And you and I, Bredo, will be there talking about love and relationships, work-life balance, and how to truly master your wellness. Zazen
0: Alkaline Water presents the Wellness Base Camp. One full day of inspiration and education on this
1: Saturday, June 2, from 10 until 5. There's over 1,000 bucks in door prizes, a raft of world-class local exhibitors, and a room full of people just like you. So bring a buddy and get two tickets for the price of one. All details and tickets available at thewellnessbasecamp.com. That's thewellnessbasecamp.com.
2: Thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up For A Chat with Cindy O'Meara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison.
0: Here we are, up for a chat about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Meara, and welcome to the second series of interviews that I've done with uh, people that will be speaking at my Functional Nutrition Academy Summit on the 28th and 29th of July at the Queensland University of Technology in Kelvin Grove. We're also doing a screening for what's with wheat on the Friday before, so that's the 28th of July in the Brisbane CBD. So make sure you get onto the website, FN, F for functional, N for nutritional, FN.academy and go to events and book for this summit. The summit is open to students of the Functional Nutrition Academy as well as graduates and to the general public. To the public who want to know a little bit more, so last week, I interviewed Dr. Rodney Ford, gastroenterologist and pediatrician, uh, and also Dr. Joanne Messenger, chiropractor and hormone specialist, and somebody who can really help you get out of the way of yourself so that you make the changes. What I often find is that people, they make the changes, they feel amazing, everything's going well. And then they say to me, Cindy, I was doing really well. And then Life got in the way. I got stressed and I went back to my old ways. Well, when you're stressed, you actually need to be on par. You need to be doing everything right because your body doesn't not only need to deal with stress, but you don't want it dealing with the junk food and the, and the, and the old habits that are not good for your health to have to deal with it. So Dr. Joanne Messenger will be speaking about that. So if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to those two amazing interviews. So, today I'll be interviewing Dr. Maggie Smith. She's the founder of Smart DNA as well as the author of Gene Genius. She is one amazing lady. We have interviewed her before. Um, we had a whole hour with her and we had so many people say how much they loved what she had to say. So, if you want to spend some time with her, please come to the Functional Nutrition Academy Summit in Brisbane on 28th and 29th of July. But until then, here are two amazing interviews um, with Dr Maggie Smith and our second interview is with Professor Cliff Hawkins. Now, Cliff Hawkins, you will see, um, is one amazing man who had a problem in his family and he did some research. So the research um, that he went through was enzymes and digestion and so you'll be hearing all about that throughout these amazing two interviews. So enjoy and here we go. Welcome to the speaker's introduction for the Nutrition Summit for 2018. We have a wonderful lineup of speakers to give you more information than what you're learning in the functional nutrition course. I've hand-picked each one of these speakers. They will give you the latest in science and research in their particular field. And right now, I have with me the amazing Dr. Margie Smith. And I love her because we've already done um, an Up for a Chat podcast with you and you blew Kim Morrison and, and myself away. Um, but one of the things I don't think we asked you, Margie, was why do you do what you do? Because it's, it's pretty extraordinary what you're doing right now.
2: Well, Cindy, thank you so much for welcoming me on board. And, look, the reason why I do what I do is because I'm really passionate about preventative health. I worked in mainstream medicine for 20 years or more, And what I got to see in mainstream medicine was that whilst we helped some people, we didn't really help everybody. And that really turned me around to looking at nutrigenomics and personalized medicine and what we can truly do to help people, you know, in a very personalized way. So it's not one size fits all anymore because clearly that approach doesn't work. So that's why I get out of bed in the morning, basically, is to to help people, Um, And to also delve more into the science and see what else we can find that is going to be of benefit to to practitioners and also um, their clients or their patients.
0: You know, one of the things that they do learn in their functional nutrition um, course um, through the fundamentals as well as in the applied is that we, we do talk about nutrigenomics and you know, for me as a nutritionist, and I've been one for going on um, nearly four decades now, is that when I, I always knew food was important, but when I understood that nutrigenomics means that food is not only, and mark me if I'm wrong on this one, but food is not only about the energy that you get and, the, uh, and what you produce, but is actually speaking to your genes, to your DNA. And, and when I heard this, I was, I, I just was, I guess, blown away by uh, how do we know what a natural flavoring is speaking to our DNA when it's never done it in the history um, of the of human species until well, when natural flavoring started back in the '80s, I think it was, or maybe even, and that was artificial, I think back then. Not that there's much difference. So. When, when you figured this out, when you knew about nutrigenomics, what, what did it do for you?
2: Well, it, uh, I mean, I have a, um, a very different way to view the world because I think that everything's connected in the world. And so, when I was thinking about this whole nutrigenomic space, you know, it suddenly, you know, occurred to me that pretty much everything that we eat, everything we drink, breathe, and think. Has a molecular consequence. Everything is connected, so it made perfect sense to me that um, bioactive um, components of foods would would connect with our DNA. I mean, we've evolved with with food mm-hmm. over time, and and so it's a really critical piece that that people understand that um, there is a molecular consequence to eating processed foods versus eating whole foods and also those component pieces of those foods have an impact but more importantly it's personalization that's the key so what might be good for you might not be good for somebody else mm. and uh, and that's really a very big take message so that's what we want to delve into
0: which which is wonderful because we're beginning to realize that because what was it, 1982, the Australian Dietary Guidelines came out, which was a one-size-fits-all, low-fat, high-carbohydrate, so many serves of grains, you know, small amounts of fat and then everything in between. And we've realised that that was probably one of the biggest disasters we've ever seen. But what surprises me is with our knowledge that we have today, Margie, why are they still teaching the ridiculous dietary guidelines?
2: I know it's really hard to take, isn't it? I mean, I often have a little giggle to myself because I think, well, they were in a pyramid and they've just come out of the pyramid and now they're onto a plate, but I'm not quite sure they've got that plate looking right either. So, and this is the whole thing with recommended daily intakes. They're just standard. That's nothing to do with personalization. So, you know, telling everybody that they need to meet the daily recommended t- intake for vitamin C, That's okay, but that's actually a bell-shaped curve. So there are going to be people who need to intake more vitamin C than others based on genetics, but that message doesn't get out there. I guess people operate in a way that feels comfortable for them, and they have the government guidelines, but um, we've had some really big disasters um, with uh, food recommendations for the population as a whole, and certainly... um, those high carb loading type diets probably weren't the best fit for human beings.
0: No, not at all. What um, What do you foresee in the future um, with what's happening with medicine at the moment? So you had obviously worked in that field. You were in it deeply in it for a long time. It it doesn't seem to be. Changing as far as recommendations for perhaps you need to look at your diet because it may have something to do with your disease um, or whatever or whatever the problem might be. Do you see it changing uh, in the future, or do you think we're still going to look at pharmaceuticals and not be looking at diet?
2: I mean that's. <sighs> Really hard to answer how that's going to pan out I mean you'd have to say at the moment in mainstream medicine, their genomic um, inputs really are around disease causing mutations because we 've just you know got an amazing amount of new toys in that molecular genetic space that that 's an area that they 're focusing on I, I think you know the fact is that doctors get about four hours of training in nutrition, so it's hardly um, there on the radar in terms of looking at nutrition. I think slowly over time that may change, but I think, you know, the up-and-coming nutritionists really are going to be leading the way on this as they embrace um, nutrigenomics and the new discoveries in that area. Um, I don't see that mainstream medicine is going to be um, leading the way anytime soon in this space, and it's a little bit disappointing um, we, we look at um, cardiovascular health and the main recommenda- recommendation is follow a Mediterranean style diet but you know how would it be if we actually understood that there's three main versions of a Mediterranean style diet based on your genetics, how about if we actually incorporated that instead of just sending people home with um, you know a packet full of uh, statin drugs because that's what they're told to prescribe um, You know, statin drugs are the least effective um, in the high cardiovascular risk group. We know that, but they are the most nutritionally responsive people. So, I mean, I really um, despair and I think that we really, you know, need to work with um, practitioners that can actually embrace this knowledge and also then work with their clients to affect better outcomes. I mean, we already know from um, studies that individuals with diabetes or a pre-diabetic who work with a practitioner um, have better outcomes in terms of their health than individuals who take metformin alone for treatment of their diabetes. So, you know, that uh, interaction with a, a trained practitioner using nutrigenomic tools, those individuals actually do better. So I think we've got some great models for it. I think we just need to persevere and keep pushing on because mainstream medicine doesn't have nutrigenomics in their crosshairs at the moment. They're too busy trying to solve the issues of complex um, genetic diseases um, and, and solving those those issues rather than looking at something very practical like nutrigenomics and, and helping the mainstream
0: Uh, folks
2: out there so Mm. at the moment
0: I was in a very surreal meeting um not that long ago um it was a local gastroenterologist's place um his clinic and he had invited GPs and uh he, he himself spoke as well as a radiographer who had been diagnosed with type 1 diabetes here on the coast And um, he was talking about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and how it was growing not only in Australia and the US and um, England, but it was also growing throughout Japan, India, China in massive amounts. And, you know, he went through all the science of the the drugs that that, um, they're using and how they're not working and he went to diet, he went to the low carb, high fat diet as the best thing that we know that will help, um, you know, this disease. And I, I sat there looking at all the GPs nodding their head. There were two dietitians in the room as well, and I was, I was, I felt very surreal. And then the radiographer who had type one diabetes, he um, had gone to the dietitian when he he basically diagnose himself with the, the disease. So he went to the dietitian and was told what to do. And he said he never felt so bad in his whole life trying to get his blood sugars under control, which he never did until he started to research himself. And he also went to a more paleo diet um, to keep his blood sugar at five. And he actually showed his charts up to us. So I, I do have inklings, um of hope. <laughs> nice I
2: guess I, I guess I didn't mean to, you know, make it sound like all doom and gloom. Yeah. I think the point I'm trying to make is that whilst there are individual doctors and specialists who are embracing this information and are looking at diet, it's actually not taught across the board in mainstream medicine. So these are individuals who are having that epiphany themselves and working in their own small way. Um, and that's that's great. That's to be applauded. But it's just not happening across the board in mainstream medicine. It's,
0: yeah, it's it's more the system that we need to change rather than the, you know the individuals that are changing. And and that's the same with dietetics as well. You know, uh, it's not so much the individuals that seem to be the problem. It's the it's the system.
2: Exactly. Um, I mean, with that, with exactly. it's not. Sorry. The um, fatty liver disease that you were talking about. We recently did a, a study looking at um, fatty liver disease and individuals were put on a, um, a diet for a week where they basically ate everything that was steamed, steamed vegetables, steamed fish and so on. Mm-hmm. And then the, they had a washout period and then the, the, the next week they ate fried foods for that week. And their microbiomes we're completely opposite to each other in terms of the main contributions to that microbiome. If you want to have a healthy microbiome, I mean, I guess it's pretty obvious, right? Steam foods are probably going to be better than fried foods, but um, the microbiome shifted dramatically. And so, you know, if anyone ever thought food doesn't have an impact, they really need to think again. Um, You know, that, an eye opener to me and that was just one thing that people can change trying to eat more steamed foods than than fried food.
0: So that changed from one week to the next. Is that what yep. you're saying? Wow. Yeah,
2: so so basically you know your if you change your diet, um your diet will shift within twenty four hours of moving to a new diet, but it will take forty eight hours to revert back to what it was originally.
0: That is stunning, isn't it, that we can it's, do that?
2: It's amazing. So I, I think that there are, you know, areas in and, and medicine where they are looking at it, but it's more in that very cautious sort of research type way. Um, but they are getting phenomenal results. And we, we're going to have to have a breakthrough moment at some point, I agree, Cindy. Yeah
0: well it'll be it'll be good to see, and I think you know the what I'm seeing now like I said i've been in this four decades what i'm seeing now is a really big shift than i've I've never seen before more and more people are talking about it and you know and and I guess the amount of people that are doing my course, which is twelve months of you know understanding what food is all about and understanding how historical perspective on food and how did we eat. So you talked about the Mediterranean diet, you know, there's three distinct different types. Well, there's many paleo diets, many herding diets and many agricultural diets. And we seem to just say, well, there's just one paleo diet or one of these. So um, I think understanding the historical perspective of food as well as looking at the food as a whole as opposed to its component parts um, as we have been doing is a, is a long way into doing it. Um, something that I wanted you to, um, I, I don't know if you're going to talk about at the summit, but one of the things that um, I've been also blown away by is the metabolites of the microbiome and the, the way they talk to um our body and change, um, our up regulating or down regulating of, of certain genes. Do you want to, um, talk about that a little bit?
2: Sure. So, you know, this once again fits with, I was talking about everything being connected. So in terms of our microbiome, we've just talked about how quickly our microbiome can shift from a healthy state to an unhealthy state and, and back again, for example. So, you know, bacteria are there, Uh, obviously, you know, gobbling up a lot of (laughs) what we eat and breaking it down, but it's their metabolites that they actually produce that can interact with our um, innate genome. Um, If we look at um, oxalobacter formogens, for example, that's a bacteria that breaks down oxalates. So, you know, so oxalates in food, so things like strawberries, rhubarb, chocolate. If you don't have those bacteria, then in your microbiome, then they're, you're unable to actually break down oxalates in food. So that can lead to elevated levels of circulating oxalates in your blood. And ultimately, that can lead to kidney stone formation. So there's been a really nice study done recently whereby they've got a group of individuals together who were forming kidney stones. They found they didn't have any oxalobacter formigenes. They produced a supplement. The individuals took the supplement um, and they basically stopped forming kidney stones. So you can recolonize um, your microbiome if those component parts are missing. You know, your good old E. coli is there helping to produce neurotransmitters for our brain. So if people are Feeling anxious or stressed, um, it may be because they actually don't have any E. coli there. There's no calming neurotransmitters being produced um, for our brain to use. So, you know, there's this very intimate connection between our gut microbiome and our brain. So, that's some, certainly something I want to explore at the summit and um, talk more about with participants. So, it's a pretty exciting space to be working in.
0: And you say exciting, like I'm, I'm sitting here like almost quivering going, oh my goodness, just like, because, you know, people have problems with oxalates and histamines and, and yeah. all of these things and all of a sudden we're coming up with a really easy way to identify if that's what the problem is. So, uh, you know, I'm excited. Like I said, I'm quivering here and everybody we've got speaking at this summit um, all has a specialty and you all seem to meld into each other, even though your specialties are, are very, very different. So I'm, um, I know that everybody who goes to this uh, summit, and it's just two days, and we have six speakers. Will walk away from it so much more informed with tools that they need in order to really make some solid changes in not only their own health, um, but that of their communities, if that's where they're willing to go and, and help. And if we have some professionals that will be in the room as well, and they'll be able to start helping their, you know, their patients as well. So one of the things that I was very fortunate to have and what you gave me was a smart DNA. I guess analysis of my genes, and then um, it all talked about. You know, you only you did so many genes that had to do with nutrition. And what I found fascinating um, is that I've always eaten well, Maggie. I've always mm-hmm. I know how to eat nutrition, and I, I know to eat well because I've understood nutrition for a long time. And what was interesting is that intuitively, I found I was doing. Most of the things that the consultants um, told me I should be doing. And I kept going, How did I know to do that? How did I know to stay away from that? What was that? So we actually do have this innate understanding. It's just that I think, and you mark me if I'm wrong, I think people have lost it. And so now we've got these tools that will help us find it again. Would you agree with that? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, I think practitioners are. Um, intuitively aware of of their bodies, but I think the rest of the populations <laughs> forgotten how to actually be in tune with their bodies. And I think when that happens, you can almost feel that depth of despair about knowing what you can actually um, do to help yourself, um, and how your genome might mean, for example, that it's harder for you to to lose weight than other people. And you know, typically, they're people who've done the rounds of every diet and then they don't work if they only they understood that their body's ability to burn fat is much slower then you know with the help of a practitioner they can actually you know be guided through that process knowing that it's going to take slightly longer i mean even things like the good old fat so gene (laughs) you know i mean that's that's all geared up for um you know helping us to hang on to um our body fat, but also um, it means that people are drawn to very energy-dense foods. And um, so weight gain with a lot of energy-dense foods is a very quick and dramatic way to gain weight. So, you know, with the FATSO gene, we know that some of the things you can do, and this is where epigenetics comes into play, if you've got, you know, two copies of that risky FATSO gene, simple things like brisk walking, can actually help you get better control of leptin because that's the issue. Everyone's told to eat until they get a full signal. Well, if you've got two copies of the FATSO gene, waiting for a full signal isn't going to happen any time this lifetime, okay? So, I mean, but the thing is, when you when people exercise epigenetically, they get better control of leptin, so they tend to stop overeating. Protein with every meal is key and fiber. So we need to help people feel fuller for longer. So, you know, keeping that satiety going.
1: Have
2: you ever wondered whether, you know, you've got the snack gene or not? Well, you know, if you're a person who's out there snacking all day, you probably do have the snack gene or the good old sweet tooth gene. So, you know, it's it's exciting and it's fun. It's fun to sort of change your consciousness about yourself and understand that so much of, you know, food addiction is really to do with our brain and not much to do with our taste buds.
0: And I also look at it, um, like if we take the fat so gene for, for instance, that would have been very handy in times of not a lot of food being around. So you would have been preserving your energy, um, not losing your fat too quickly when you went into ketosis. So okay, I see all of these as important parts of our historical evolutionary history that were there for a very good reason. Um, what I what I struggle no, but with
2: how is it working for us now? Yeah, I
0: know. <laughs> there is no winter here. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> But I think if people understand that, then they they realise that that ebb and flow of life is really important, that we, in the summer, we might eat those sweet fruits and those Um, concentrated foods because that's what was available in the summer and in the winter we should be calming down and not eating foods that come from the northern hemisphere to the southern hemisphere or we should be eating those lean meats as opposed to the the meats that would have been fat in the um, in the summertime as opposed to the winter and I I think when people get to understand that then um, you know they're not going to curse the genes that they've been given, but rather go. Oh my goodness, I'm from that era. You know, that's where I came from. But when I did, um, I did uh, 23andMe. Um, no, it wasn't 23andMe. It was Ancestry DNA. That's right. I did Ancestry DNA. My brother yeah. gave it to me. I said to him, "What? You don't think we're brother and sister?" And <laughs> so I did Ancestry DNA, and um, what was really interesting is it came back that I was 1.79 percent Neanderthal. Mm-hmm. which, you know, I thought, well, I guess everybody was that, but, you know, it takes us back to that we have come from that era and these alleles or whatever we have or the, the what you said, the two parts of it or the two alleles were there for our saving. And I guess once we understand that, we can learn to work with it, which I think is exciting.
2: Yeah, I've um, done a similar test and I must confess that I have quite a, big contribution of the earth, Neanderthal gene. So uh, <laughs> so I guess that means we're pretty ancient.
0: Yeah, definitely. So we'll be talking about uh, the microbiome um, and the, um, the metabolites that the microbiome affects and we'll be talking about the genes and, and food and how that affects. What else will we, will we be talking about at the summit, Maggie?
2: I think we need to talk about, you know, how we bring all this together. And it's also important to um, understand how we metabolize vitamins. I mean, you know, (laughs) vitamins are just as important important as pharmaceutical drugs. And we look at, um, you know, testing in terms of how people metabolize pharmaceutical drugs. Well, vitamins are no different. We need to understand um, how people metabolize vitamins at an individual level. So what's good for one person may not be good for you. I think that's a a key area for us to understand. Um, You know, certainly uh, vitamin C, um, glutathione enzymes being deleted. What does that mean? Um, How can you actually um, reduce your risk of um, developing a cancer later on in life if you don't have those genes? So who knew? You don't actually have copies of um, some genes. So it's the last bastion where we get to blame our parents, I think. Um, (laughs) um, Methylation. Methylation is... um, an area that is talked about a lot, but I think we need to understand it within the perspective of nutrigenomics and what methylation actually does, turning genes on and off, and um, how we can actually keep our cells at, at a healthy state, making lovely, faithful copies of themselves. How can we actually achieve that? Cardiovascular health, we, we looked at. I think exercise is a key area so that individuals understand. Um, what kind of exercise is best suited for them, especially to avoid injury? Um, remember, we want to be able to exercise for for life, not just you know between our twenties and forties, and then let it drop off. Um, so overall, I think looking at that whole preventative health approach, and then and bringing together um, gut health along with our DNA and understanding how bacteria, for example, can pull the strings on our inflammatory responses in our body and why it's important to keep some of those phylum under control so that we don't have, you know, a more enhanced or more pro-inflammatory response going on in our bodies. So We're going to bring it all together. That's what we're going to do.
0: Wow, I can hardly wait. And I know that um, many of the students who have already booked are looking forward to it too. So we will see you July, um, the last weekend in July in Brisbane, um, and I'm looking forward to it. Thank
2: you. So am I. I can't wait.
0: (laughs) Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much. We'll talk. um, Yeah, we'll we'll see each other in two months. And and just for the students that are listening, I'm going to confiscate Margie. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to take her away and I'm going to ask her a million questions. You watch, we'll all be doing it. And and that's what I find is that when I listen to something like this, Margie, like right now I've been listening to you and I have so many questions that I want to ask you and I know that the students will be thinking the same thing. So by you bringing it all together, that will um, take away a lot of those questions, but no doubt they'll have more for you.
2: Well, look, if anyone's feeling shy after I've given my presentation, just feel free to come up and have a chat. I'm quite approachable.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for, the, for your half hour right now. Bye. Thanks, Cindy. Thank you. Welcome to the speaker's introduction for the Nutrition Summit of 2018. There's a wonderful lineup of speakers to give you more information on nutrition. I've handpicked them myself, giving you the latest in science and research in their field. Today, or just at the moment, we have um, Professor Cliff Hawkins. Uh, Cl- I first heard about Cliff, he did a summit with Kale Brock, and um, I think I listened to his interview with Kale. I reckon, four or five times. It was brilliant information, and I thought that um, the students would love to hear from uh, Professor Hawkins. First of all, welcome, Cliff. Thank you for okay. taking the time.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
0: (laughs) I would like everybody to know why you do what you do because I found this absolutely fascinating because you're, I could go on about all the things that you have done, but I want to know why you do what you do.
1: Well, it all comes from a problem my family had and that is that my grandchildren, a number of my grandchildren, but particularly one, have their life under threat from the food they're eating. And I'm a scientist, a medical scientist going back. I'm ancient, so I've got many lives. But uh, I went through the John Curtin School of Medical Research and worked on uh, my own area. But my, my colleagues that I worked with were working on nutrition in animals. And so we did experiments on animals as well as do my own work. And so I knew a lot about nutrition from my early days. And, um, but I spent my life doing research and running universities until I found my, um, one of my grandchildren, a granddaughter, uh, who was very young, was having fits and the medical profession uh, could not work out what was wrong with her. And they just wanted to operate on her. And um, I just said to them, unless you can tell me what you want to operate on, then I'm taking her out of this hospital, which thankfully I did. And then I I gave up what I was doing as a career and devoted my life to working out what was wrong with my family because I thought it was just us. And my granddaughter, thankfully, were able to work out what was wrong with her very quickly. It was all food-based problems and we uh, were able to correct them because I had worked in my scientific career on animals and how to get good nutrition into animals and what was the problem in the food we're giving to animals. And so I realised it was probably the same problem in humans. And after reading and studying the the problem, I used my family as the guinea pigs, including my granddaughter. And thankfully, she quickly recovered. Uh, but um, I mean, she was uh, less than a year, and so she was over the period when you can actually change her sort of body shape and make it taller and bigger and bigger shoulders and so on. But we we're able to make her healthy, and she is now uh, doing a medical degree in Sydney. And um, so that's it's about uh, 25 years ago. Anyway, some years ago. And, um, and so she's healthy as healthy can be. And uh, she does follows our own program for um, food and taking our products. And um, so after I found you could fix up my family, I looked around to see how big a problem it was. And in Australia, it's about, um, in reality, it's about 70% of the population who have uh, the gene for food intolerance, and um, not all of them are recognising they have a problem, but members of their family have the problem, it's just not all the family has yet recognised it. And so it's a a problem we started to work on animals again and develop markets for uh, how we could change the food, and then we got into the human food. And so our business really is, I mean, I don't do any business, I'm too old for that, but my family does the business, and what we do is we, we work on food and we give uh, haircuts. Basically, that's the two things we do. And if you can see my beautiful body, you realize I've always loved food. And uh, so what we do not only makes the food safe for people, uh, all people, but uh, and, and I mean all people, not just people with food intolerance, but all people are eating food they can't digest and so the large intestine becomes acidic through the fermentation of the food. And um, that means that they're, they're really getting toxins into the body and not performing as they should be able to perform. So basically we're into food. We make food healthy. We make, by doing that, we make the food taste better, smell better, wine. I just come back from uh, Burgundy and um, the wine industry invited me to talk to them because we make wine Much, much nicer to drink in terms of the aroma, in terms of the flavor. And so we're in that business of food to make it healthy for all people. And uh, we're feeding a lot of animals around the world to make them healthy, And then we give haircuts. And the haircuts relate to cells that are bad for you. And so in food, the proteins that are bad for you are there really to protect you in a sense. But if your immune system is a particular one and you eat these foods, then you have a bad reaction, your immune system goes crazy. And our aim is to calm the immune system down. So we calm the immune system down and people who follow our program, but we give a haircut to any bad cells you have, because all the bad cells protect themselves by putting the same proteins in the food on them. And we just give them a haircut and they can't hurt you anymore. And that relates to all cells. And um so I've just come back from Europe as I said, well, Russia and UAE and and there we're putting our products into animals to make them antibiotic-free so that you can raise animals and not give them a program of antibiotics, which is really hurting mankind. And we're the first people really to be able to successfully have a program where the welfare of the chickens is looked after. They don't die from whatever the people do to give them antibiotic-free. The animals are absolutely healthy, but they have no antibiotics throughout their life. and. So that's our aim. Our aim is to make the food healthy for people, to help the animals um, have a much healthier life, and um, and we're doing just with food. Basically, we're using food to make food healthier, and our our products are all based on ginger and pineapple and a few others. I can't hear. you.
0: Some of my nutrition students uh, recommended them to. Um, listened to the summit and they listened to you and they bought your product. And one of the students, her husband um, had an autoimmune disease and started to use the product and found a vast difference. So, I know that um, what you've been researching and what you're doing, and like you said, you have many wives in the, in the animal and the human um, health industry. But what we're seeing right now um, and, and everybody who's joined in this education is realising that not only their own selves or their families but there's a commu- there are communities out there where people are very sick. Uh, and it oh. amazes me that your granddaughter has done medicine um, as opposed to something to do with nutrition, tell me about that.
1: Well, it's it, no your grandchildren don't want to do what you do, basically <laughs> and um and so uh, she chose to do medicine. I don't think it's a wise choice, but um I think it'd be better for her to do medical science and then come and help me. Uh, <laughs> thankfully, I do have some grandchildren who want to work with me, but um because it's a family operation that we do. But as the autoimmune conditions are very, very serious and widespread. They all come from food. I mean, every disease you can think of comes from the gut other than direct infections or some physical problem, and that includes from the brain to the toes, you know. And um, so th- this approach we've taken to give haircuts to bad cells, that includes every bad cell you can think of, and that includes um, drug-resistant bacteria, I don't know of another approach in the medical field that is so successful in removing promptly bacteria that are drug-resistant, and I don't know of um, another medicine that can get rid of bacteria and uh, viruses that are, are really seriously affecting the world from the brain, again, right through your body, other than our product. And I work with a team of medicos online Uh, to address very serious viral infections. So we've turned out to be very successful. Our aim was just to make my family healthy, but we're now going to, I think, have a major impact on the world's health, but we're only a small company and we're just going along and helping different people. But in the long term, our aim is to help mankind, and so I think we will be able to do that, but it'll take us time to... Get people to believe. that that's the problem?
0: Yeah, that's the issue. What I love is that you know you're taking the antibiotics not only away from the animals but also humans may not have to take them the way they're taking them. Um, and like like I've been doing this, Cliff, for um, nearly four decades. I started my nutrition degree back in the nineteen in 1980. And what I've noticed in four decades, and you will have seen it too, both in animal and human health, is that our health isn't getting better; it's getting worse, and that we're becoming more intolerant to food. We're becoming more having more allergies, autoimmune diseases are, are increasing. Uh, my sister um, died of an autoimmune disease. Um, which one? Crest. Please tell me which. One. Calcinosis I don't know yeah, Crest. She passed from Crest. We didn't know anything back in the 80s when she was diagnosed with it. And uh, I feel like, you know, she's been gone nearly 12 years and I oft- often think if we knew what we knew back then. And so I thank people like you who are are coming up with something to help these people to be able to deal with the food that they're consuming, to, re- to stop the the body eating itself and to, to help with viruses. One thing I'd really like to ask you is Epstein-Barr, Gillian-Barr, these viruses are being named as um, things that are or or they're being associated with many diseases. Um, Are you going to talk about these viruses at all?
1: Oh, very much, very much, because the serious autoimmune conditions need your immune system to be highly sensitised. Food will sensitise you up so you can turn on, I think, about 90% of the autoimmune conditions. But to get the really bad things like lupus, multiple sclerosis, and perhaps Parkinson's disease, a number of the really bad cancers, to get the immune system stimulated enough to turn the genes of those on, um, you need to have a bad viral infection. An Epstein-Barr virus and cytomegalovirus are two of the common viruses that go into the brain. And in the brain, they can stimulate the immune system enormously. And they, they turn on all these really, really bad autoimmune conditions. And the, the normal medication that is available for people to get rid of Epstein-Barr virus, especially out of the brain, there are none of them. Hmm, Where our no. product goes into the brain in about four minutes, and our enzymes give a haircut to, we don't need two of our products to do it, but we'll give a haircut to cytomegalovirus and Epstein-Barr virus very quickly. And so the people can get rid of the infection. It takes time because they're lying latent in white cells in the brain, but we stimulate the white cells and the viruses pop out and give them a haircut. And so it takes more than a couple of days to get rid of the virus out of the brain completely. But over that period, the immune system calms down and switches off the gene. So the people's disease situation that they're worried about is turned off. Now, that is a very rare thing to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so we, we, we work on, I mean, it's my, my preference is to help young children. So I do a lot of work on, on cystic fibrosis, for example, and autism. And the autism comes from a problem in the brain. And uh, we can repair that damage in young children in a matter of days. I mean, a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And uh, older people, it takes longer. And and you you have to understand there are two sorts of human beings, one's a male and one's a female, and they're different animals altogether. And the female is a sensitive creature if you haven't worked it out, and the male is sensitive while they're young. But once they get sexually mature, they become like men, and those men are, are rather uh, like a, l- a lump of wood. You know, they're not sensitive, and their immune system doesn't respond so quickly. So. If you can get to a boy with autism in the, before he becomes sexually mature, then he responds very, very, very quickly. The young <laughs> respond further down the track. But they all eventually will respond, but I mean in a couple of days. And, uh, and cystic fibrosis is one of the diseases which really disturbs me. And we've had a lot of experience with it. But it's, it's to do with uh, a, 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 an autoimmune condition which you can switch off. We, we can switch it off in young children very quickly. And once you switch it off, then the the body is able to deal with the problem and you have to deal with bacteria in the lung and our stuff will just give a haircut to all the bacteria that can invade the lung. And so the child can recover and show no symptoms for cystic fibrosis in a matter of days, not months, not years, days. And within a matter of a fortnight, the child can be declared free of symptoms and remain free of symptoms while they're on the program. Now, that sort of thing just, changes the life of a family who have cystic fibrosis children. Mm. And the similar sort of thing happens with autism. But uh, we're, we're able to apply our simple ideas of a food. It's a food. You just get the food all treated with our food and calm down the immune system and switch off the gene that's causing this disease. And once you switch off the gene, you can do the repair to the body because the body has really set itself up to repair itself only when inflammation is gone. So you can do major things, changes to your body very quickly. And that's
0: what you do. I'm wondering, what is happening? This, what, You know, like if we look back into the 60s and 70s and even 80s, this wasn't happening. Um, and I understand you found an anecdote, but what do you think is has happened to our bodies and our immune systems as well as our food for this to be um, such a concern? And we're, and we're seeing the growth in autism, um, you know, and cystic fibrosis, you know, usually they have lung transplants, they're on antibiotics for the whole of their lives. What, what is happening? Why are we seeing this increase in your um, mind?
1: Well, the basic problem is processed food in a sense. And, if, I mean, I grew up in the bush a bit and, my mum fed us all the wrong things, but I was when I look back when I was young. I had a little Irish mother, and she had all sorts of immune problems. And she would grow spinach and carrots and potatoes and chickens, and um, she would serve us up varieties of that every meal. And I always say to her, I don't like the carrots, and Mum would say it's good for you, and I would say no, it's not. I know it's not good for you. <laughs> and she'd feed me spinach, and she used to say, look at Popeye. Now, Popeye, I don't know if you know Popeye, you're probably too young, but Popeye the Salomon, do you remember Popeye? Yeah, yeah,
0: I know Popeye.
1: Why was he always smiling? He always had a smile on his face. Because uh, spinach has the highest opium, con- uh, most active opium um, drug in any of the foods, and um, it's a problem which protein that our stuff breaks down, so... For a reason, which um, you know, it's just me, I guess. But I used to say, I don't want the spinach, I don't want the carrots, and and little boys are sort of said to be bad because they don't eat their food. But I'd feed it to the dog, and I'd eat the I'd eat the chicken, I'd eat the potato, which was actually a safe thing. But now we're not given that choice. We eat processed foods. We eat certain things for breakfast, which are really bad for you, and we think they're good because we're told they're good, and we eat um, these processed foods, and the, the various Proteins that stimulate the immune system are in there and they're just turning on the gene and making go up. And and, and I'm going to say something which I want to explain. I'm not against vaccinations, but uh, the the vaccinations that we're getting after 1993 are really good. I mean, I was in the John Curtin School of Medical Research when the first flu vaccine was produced, and that was done by Frank Fenner and Ian. I forget Ian's, Ian's name, but anyway, Ian Holmes. And that was as hailed as this great success. It was. But that only helped about, I think it may be 10% of the people. But um, now we've been, since 1993, we've learned how to make vaccines. And we make vaccines that really turn on the immune system. And they not only turn on the sort of killer cell parts. And the killer cell parts are very useful. I mean, vaccines are valuable because it actually gives you specific cells that will go and, and chomp up a virus that you have had the vaccination for and so that that is extremely important for the world but unfortunately these days they also design their their vaccines to turn on the T2 helper cell vaccine uh, immune system and so they stimulate that and turn it on to a level which now when you eat the food you get a vaccination from the food so you get you get a morning You know, breakfast vaccination, morning tea vaccination, lunch vaccination, afternoon tea vaccination, dinner vaccination. Because the T2 helper cell doesn't distinguish which is the source of the protein. As long as the protein has certain features, it will have a reaction. So it is the success of our vaccine since 1993 is a problem. I just think it's important people understand that you don't then wipe out all vaccinations because there's this other part of the vaccination which will help the mankind. Eliminate a disease, but if everyone used our product, I wouldn't be worried because you'll get rid of the the virus or whatever the problem is. Because our stuff's been tested by the WHO on the say the the bird flu and other viruses they had in their collection, and they'd inhibited them all. Because all we do is give them a haircut. We're non-discriminatory. We just we've got a pair of scissors and we just give them a haircut. But the vaccines are one of the things because after a vaccination, the sort of Logic for saying that vaccines are not hurting you is wrong in that they say that after three weeks you can't find a live organism that you've been vaccinated for in your body and after about three weeks you can't find any of the proteins from the surface of the organism they vaccinated you for in your system. But what they're not saying is anything about turning on the immune system. Your immune system, they deliberately turn on. They want to turn it on. And having switched it on, now the food proteins are making that get more intensely turned on and it will, your whole immune system is so sensitized, that it'll turn on all the autoimmune genes. And that is a, a basically a problem. And so it's a, it's a thing like, that's why I'm working with chickens. Chickens uh, get all these antibiotics, they get all the vaccinations and I do these trials which show if you don't use the antibiotics, and you don't use the vaccines and you don't put other supplements in, the chickens don't die. They're healthier. The mortality rate goes down. And uh, and so it's important for people to know that you can deal with it. But I'm not going to say don't have a vaccination. All my grandchildren have had vaccinations, even though uh, our granddaughter had the problem, had the problem directly after vaccination. All the children, grandchildren have had it because I see a value in using the killer cell approach to get rid of um, Um, viral diseases but um, that's what's turned it on and uh, here governments keep on saying oh we have to vaccinate old people we have to vaccinate fat people we have to vaccinate every people they don't realize the fat people are fat not all but the fat people are fat because they've got food intolerance so they've got a gene which is deliberately designed to to make sure they don't get the flu and a common cold and and hooping off and everything else. And and they think that the fat people are susceptible to every disease in the world. Actually, they're not. They've gone through life without having the flu and having the common cold or all these things. They just have a gene which turns on their immune system, which puts out a cytokine, which doesn't allow the glucose to go into energy cells and instead it goes into fat cells. And they get a nice fat tummy if you're a man, and a nice fat bottom if you're a woman, and a nice fat breast if you're a woman. And if you get a fat Tummy is your woman, then stay clear because she's a dominant woman. But, uh, I mean, it's just they have to understand where that fat comes from. Now, there are people who eat too much. They eat all the wrong things. and They get fatter and fatter and fatter. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about people who have a protective layer of fat, which is on their tummy if it's a man, that's on the backside of the woman or the breast. And um, that is the same in chickens. You know, they get fat under the skin because we feed them all the wrong things. And they got the same genes, the same in cattle. So if you go into a chiller room and look at cattle, you'll see carcasses, you'll see the ones on our stuff, we've got none of this heavy, fat layer. The ones that not on our stuff have got this fat layer. And that's the same in humans. So there's just a failure of, um, of governments to understand. Well, they get, I guess they get taught by people who've got a vested interest in it, but they refuse to listen. I came close once, once in my life. I came close to changing it. Prime Minister, who was my local member, I won't mention his name, he, he wouldn't do anything to help me really. And he's, he, um, he sent my letters, which I was sending to him, about how he, shouldn't, he should understand what was going on. He sent it to the health department. They came back and told me I was crazy. And so I told him this wasn't acceptable. And he got the head medical officer in the health department in Canberra to talk to me. On a Friday afternoon, about half past five, he rang me and said, you've got me for as long as you want. And so I bashed his ear for a number of hours and he's just telling me how I changed his life. And he went out to tell this Prime Minister that he had to change his ways. But unfortunately, that Prime Minister had a knife in his back as he, on exactly that moment. As he walked out the door, he got a knife in his back. So he didn't, wasn't able to listen to the medical officer. And it's very difficult to get people to sit down and talk to someone who has an alternative view to what is the common view that's the problem and i've given up on that i just go around the world and, and work in countries where they're where they're happy that you can improve the chickens and their and their resources and the lambs and their people so that's what i do
0: oh it sounds, it sounds absolutely wonderful and i'm really looking forward to hearing um you speak at our nutrition summit would you just like to give a a brief on uh, what you're speaking on um like the heading is um using plants um and or enzymes um for health so um just give us a brief on what you're going to talk about and then um we look forward to seeing you at the summit
1: well you tell me they're scientifically inclined and i'm a chemist i won't give them too much chemistry because that might turn them off completely but (laughs) i want them to understand the basic science of what we're about and what's the problem in food and if they just understand that and the relationship between food and other disease if they get the message so that the nutritionist thing can help people choose what food to eat and how to prepare their food so it doesn't hurt them that's what I'm about I'm about I want to teach people how to cook their food correctly and how to choose their food correctly and and, but it'll be scientifically based because that's what I am I'm a scientist Mm. And I'll show them some protein structures, but I colour them so they can think of it as a work of art, not a, a bit of you know, scientific madness. So it will be fun, but if they are prepared to listen to an old scientist talk to them, I'm happy to come and talk to them and, um, and show them examples of what we've achieved just by treating food and giving a haircut.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to it, and I know my students will be looking forward to it. Thank you, Professor Cliff Hawkins. Well, I hope you enjoyed those two amazing people. They are leaders in their field and they will be giving us even more information. As I said in uh, the first part of this series of three, I love asking why they do what they do because it's often the reason why we understand their passion and their love for, for their speciality. I read a book uh, called The Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell many years ago. And if you haven't read that book, I do recommend it. And he basically said that outliers are people who have succeeded in their line of work, whether it be music, whether it be uh, charity, whether it be nutrition, And what he said is he said that people that do 10,000 hours plus on their passion, their love or their industry are usually the ones that become the outliers. They become specialists in what they do. And I I have to tell you that Professor Cliff Hawkins and Dr. Maggie Smith are two people that have spent well over 10,000 hours in their passion and their love. So if you want to give us a comment or you have a question or, or you'd like to do a review, a review, please go to our Up For A Chat Facebook page. So that's uh, www.facebook.com forward slash Up For A Chat and let us know what you think. Give us some feedback. Uh, please give us a five-star rating um, with iTunes. And um, if you want more information, go to thewellnessguys.com forward slash up for a chat. And I'll see you next week with the next two people that I'll be interviewing, uh, Melanie Thompson and Karen Smith. You'll know that one well. All right. See you soon. Bye.
1: This year, the Wellness Summit returns.
0: The only lesson is ever going to be your learning. That's it. As long as you're learning, that's your lesson. When you stand in front of the mirror,
2: the talk, the things that go on between these ears in the morning can also be what sets you up for a day. And if you've beaten yourself up for not being the most extraordinary person that you can be, then start now. We make it hard for ourselves. We make things difficult for ourselves because we go and apply a whole bunch of stories and a whole bunch of drama and a whole bunch of I'm not good enoughs to the things that occur in our lives.
0: Wake the heck up. Today is a new day and here's where it can change.
1: Kim Morrison and Karen Smith feature at... The 2018 Wellness Summit, bigger and better than ever. Tickets on sale Friday, May 4 at thewellnesssummit.com.
2: This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives.